Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 10, Episode 4. In this week's episode, we compared some elements of Jennifer Jeffley's first statement to the statements of apartment manager Pam Wiley and the maintenance man Keith Truesdale. Throughout the course of the episode, uh, we found that there really is no evidence that Jennifer was ever in the apartment prior to Keith Truesdale entering. But we released a lot of the crime scene photos and the crime scene video along with this episode, which has generated a lot of your questions. So we're going to go ahead and get right to it. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications. And that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All righty, before we get to all of your questions, uh, a couple things. I do want to hear what Zach has to say and what his thoughts are on the episode. We haven't talked about that yet. And also want to let you guys know that we've had a couple great episodes of True Crime Binge. Since I mentioned it last, in last week's episode, which was episode four, we had Laura Richards on. You know Laura from the Real Crime Profile podcast. She's also started her brand new podcast, Crime Analyst. And in our episode, we are talking about the serial killer, Peter Sutcliffe, known as the Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, I think it's a really cool episode. You definitely want to check that out. And then this week's episode of True Crime Bins that just dropped two days ago, I had on Dr. Shiloh, who's a forensic psychologist and one of the hosts of the LA Not So Confidential podcast. Another really cool conversation. We get into a lot of uh, criminal behavior, which you all know that I love talking about. And our case of the week was uh, the case of a fire captain and fire investigator who was also an arsonist, which is really interesting for the two of us. We're both former first responders, uh, breaking down some of that psychology. So make sure you check out True Crime Binge, episodes four and five. Check them all out if you haven't already. And with that being said, Zach, you told me before we came in and I wouldn't let you talk to me until the mics were on uh, that you had some thoughts on the episode. What do you think? What are your questions? Well, right off the get-go, the thing that jumped out to me was your assessment that Ernest Watson and Tim slash Slow or whatever he mm -hmm. goes by are fictional people. Right. That blows my mind. So we're, we're going to get into more. The, again, it's one of those things where we're going to have to dig deep down each one of these rabbit holes to figure it out. But just going through the progression of the police reports. So, so you remember in the statement, Jennifer gives them yeah a description, a car, a pager number. That's what blows my right. mind is how could these people be fictional if she gave them all of this? So she's, they start with the pager, 
and they start they 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 try some stings. They try to page page the number to get him to call back, and then they eventually find out who bought the pager, and they track down subscriber information for the pager. Which, by the way, all this is beginning going to become very frustrating when you realize the stuff they didn't do. Um, but they they found out who bought the pager, who had the subscription for the pager, you know, who paid for the service for it and everything. Track this person down, and as no one even close to these guys. You know, it's some woman that is like, I don't know who those, what are you talking about? I bought that pager at a flea market, which they knew that. And I, I paid for two months of service on it. And then not, I think it was like stolen or something. It was given away. And so then they, um, basically they check and nobody has that pager number. Hasn't in a long time. It's not an active pager. So that was thing one. And so then they start going to all of the, um, the places and the people that she says they're connected to, they interview Jennifer again at some point, um, not recorded or a statement, but it says she says, oh, well, they know they know these guys, these people and these people and these people. None of those people have ever heard of them. They go they get with the gang unit that works in the, the, all of Houston, in the different regions that know they have like a they have like a uh, a list of street names. And they're like, these people don't exist. And so. And then those people kind of go to uh, like their contacts, their CIs, and start, you know, and basically what came back to was no one's ever, these names don't exist. The real name she gave, they were able to look up. They know they don't exist. The street name she gave don't exist. At one point, they pick her up and they ask her to show them where these guys live because she says she'd been there. And basically, they go on like a wild goose chase. They have her driving all over the place. And then she, it says they figure out that. She doesn't actually know where she's going. Oh, that's a weird twist to this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And those are all details we're going to get into. But yeah, the, the, the names that she, that she came up with appear to be completely fictional, which is weird because they're so detailed. But again, we don't have a recorded interview. We only have what he said. You know, it could have been like, oh, what is it? We, we just don't. I guess what I'm saying is we don't know the prodding that went into her coming up with those names. I know it's early in this, but that's a huge twist to me is them not being real people that that's huge to me huge in what way just that i mean she went through all that that time of i mean as far as we know describing these people so that they're not they're just fictional i mean that's just crazy to me that she named these people somehow wherever right. it came from and they're not even real and they're not even real yeah i mean certainly you, you know trying to stay objective i'm like well okay well maybe it was some a different two guys and she just gave them different names to try to because one thing I will tell you, I, I I know for sure, Jennifer Jeffley did not beat Catalina over the head, nor did she stab her. With 100% of surety, I can tell you that that is the case. So there were, if she was involved, other people involved. Okay. Two other people involved, for sure, which we'll get into later. But it's like, well, well then what, if she's flipped, like, why give fake names? Why not? Especially 15. She's not from the street. She doesn't. She doesn't know the... Uh, you know, prison code or whatever, you know, that you don't snitch or whatever. You got to imagine it. If she knew who did it and she's locked up at some point, she'd be like, fuck it. It was him, you know, instead of the, instead of going on with these, these fictitious names. So yeah. What else you got? Well, I think that brings, I think talking about that kind of leads me to my second big thought of the episode is, is Jennifer's maturity level. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of things that we can kind of read from this that may kind of show that she's immature and one of the big things is and you led this assessment in the story is is possibly her trying to interject herself into it to make her seem more important 
I yeah. I honestly at this point in the game, not fact, just my my feeling right now is that that's exactly what's going on here. That's what got Jennifer into trouble. Well, and that's what I was going to tell you, and you so rudely stopped me before we got in here, so you could <laughs> you could hear the story firsthand. Uh huh. But you know, I have a story that's it's very similar to this. It's obviously anecdotal, but. What it is, is I, you know, I was 14, 15 and my mother's best friend was murdered. I mean, it's been on TV. It was, it was, they did TV shows about it, Amy and all those other ones. And I can remember the officers and the detectives coming to our house to interview my mother mm-hmm. because it was one of my mother's best friends. They wanted to know what she knew, whatever. Right. Well, of course, if I told the story, it was, well, they came and interviewed us. Right. Well, they didn't talk to me at all. They didn't look at me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. But. But the story sounds so much cooler if they came to the house and they interviewed so us. So like you actually told the story to people. Yeah, about how yeah. The police I definitely came told my friends that like, oh yeah, the detectives came and interviewed us to find out what happened to Lisa. Uh huh. Yeah. That makes it sound so much more like that I had something, you know, that I could say something or was more important. Right. And I think that if we, I think Jennifer's in, and, and we have come. So I'm just to let you guys give you a little heads up. And I think I mentioned this last week, if if not at least on the Patreon video. But in a couple of weeks, I'm I'm on vacation. My wife and I are going on vacation for a week, so I'm gonna to have to pre-produce something. That is the 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 week that we're gonna get. You're gonna get a lot of Jennifer's background uh, because I have some pre-recorded interviews with family members that I can I can put together for that so that we can go. But when you hear that, you'll hear it. my assessment of Jennifer is that she was very very sheltered her whole life, which I think led to some. So there there was certainly some maturity in some aspects and, and immaturity in others. And then she gets thrust into this new, now she's in the city, in the streets in Houston, and she's trying to make friends, and she's like gotten mixed up with this older crowd. And I think that the combination of those two things had her, before the murder, in a place where she's just trying to be grown, right? Where she's trying, I think she's trying to fit, she's hanging out with a 24-year-old, with a you know youngsters 18, 19, all these people are older than her. Mm-hmm. And I think that she's she's trying to impress them all the time and trying to sound, to seem important and to seem grown. And we get that from the fact that just a little bit, we when, when she goes to Janet's apartment and decides to call the phone, we, we did talk about this last week, decides to call the phone company to get the phone put in her name. A 15-year-old with no job thinks she can just call the phone company and get it put, put in her name. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that, so relating that back to what you're getting at, which is I think what you're getting at is for me, the checking the pulse thing, I don't think it ever happened. Oh, I agree. I don't think it ever happened. And, it's, and, and of course, we have the last statement, the, sec, you know, the, the confession statement. It was, it was so – we know for a fact that was manipulated by information given to Jennifer by the, the detectives, at least some of it. Uh, but that first statement when she's just a witness and she tells the story, I think, it's, I think it's exactly that what's going on. I think that she wanted to seem – I'll give you my my opinion, my hypothesis. I think she did jump the fence. I think while Eva was gone, I think she jumped the fence and wanted to go check on her and see if she was okay. I think she jumped the fence, took one step, two steps into the apartment and saw her bloody, lifeless body on the floor and freaked out and jumped right back over the fence. And then in retelling the story in order to sound more important and more involved and like that she was doing something. I think she adds in the the oh I checked her pulse you know I was I was trying to do do more than she actually did I'm I'm putting together this week's episode right now and and so far with the documents I've been through as I'm starting to piece it together I mean that seem that 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 hypothesis seems to be supported by what we have coming Sunday 
All right, guys, let's get into these questions. Our first one comes from Kathy. Was the car ever stolen and were the keys found? The keys were never found and the car was never stolen. Detective, I believe it was Detective Allen, when he talked to uh, Juan Mandiola, who you heard from in episode one, uh, Catalina's nephew, when he came to the scene and they asked about the car, the detectives realized that they, they didn't, they couldn't find the keys inside the apartment. And so he advised Juan to take his spare set of keys and get the car out of there because they thought that it was coming back. Which, side note, I think that was stupid. Think about this for a second. If they believe the motive was to steal the car and the killers left with the car keys, wouldn't it be a, maybe a good idea to stake out the car and wait for them to come back to get the car with the car keys? Seems like a good idea. Yeah. Their idea was get this car out of here to make sure they don't steal it, which is what ended up happening. And the keys, no, were never recovered. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brian says, did Pam Wiley testify in Jennifer's trial? I think it would have been a huge hole in the case against Jennifer if Pam could verify Eva said, quote, the lady is dead when she went to the office. Uh, Pam Wiley did testify at trial. At some point, and right now we're really working on source docs. To me, for the investigative purposes, that is far more important for us to see what was said to police in the first minutes, hours, days close to the murder, rather than what the polished testimony we hear at a trial later. We'll get into it. But in Pam's case, I did go through and review that testimony, and uh, she did testify, and that never comes out, not even in cross-examination, which then makes me wonder, one, was there a Brady issue there? Did the police not turn over the statement? Because if it, you know, if, as an attorney, when she's on the stand, if Jennifer's attorney had the original, the very first police report taken from Pam Wiley within an hour or so of the murder. And in that very first statement, she says that Eva came in and said the lady is dead. Then you would be hammering on that, I think, in cross-examination. How did you know that she, that, that she was dead? Um, but as far as I know, I, I, for sure, in Pat and Pam Wiley's, I don't think even in Eva's testimony is that ever brought up. So. Either he didn't have that police report or, you know, it could be probably not ineffective assistance to counsel in as much as it could get a conviction overturned. But certainly that's exactly what it was. If he had that document and he never brought that up in front of the jury, I think that was a mistake. Matthew says, did they ever dust the plant stand for Prince? It appears that was used as a weapon against Catalina. And we know Keith touched it. But were any prints discovered other than Keith and Catalina's? We have a whole episode coming up on forensics. 
where we're going to get into that. Yes, it was dusted. I don't have off the top of my head, don't know the specifics because we're going to, again, dig into that deeply. What I can tell you is there was definitely none of Jennifer's. And I think this is important to point out since we've laid out this whole confession thing and it sounds like she gave this great recollection of what happened. What I can tell you is that there is none of Jennifer's fingerprints or DNA anywhere near the body or inside the crime scene. None, not anywhere. The only forensic evidence whatsoever against Jennifer is a set of fingerprints outside on the patio door. There was a set of prints that they said were hers, which which fits with the story she gave that she had been outside on the patio. Dawn says, what's the exact time frame? How much time did Jennifer have to allegedly do all of this? I feel like it's a short window. And also before you answer that, Along those lines, Jessica writes, do we know the time between Jennifer's phone call and the first 911 call? Is it even possible for her to have killed Catalina and cleaned up slash changed clothes before she was reported on the scene by all the witnesses? I don't think an inexperienced 15-year-old could stab someone to death without getting blood on her body and clothes. Uh, Well, first of all, as I mentioned, I don't think even if Jennifer's guilty that she did the stabbing. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think if she's guilty... The end story with her being there with people is more likely that someone else committed the murder and she happened to be there. Yeah, I think the only way if she, if she's guilty at all would be a version of that where, you know, she's there, maybe involved, but not. But I don't believe that either at this point, if I'm going to be frank with you. But um, as far as the timing goes, this is when I said earlier that you'll be upset when you find out all the work they did on that pager, what they didn't do, or at least what's not listed in the documentation that I have up to this point was they could very easily get her pager subscriber info and find out the exact time she was paged. They could get Janet Dorsey's phone records and find the exact time that the calls were made and when they were hung up. And then they could do exactly this and then and then find out when the first call to 911 was. These are all verifiable numbers that could give us an exact window of opportunity there. But at least in the records, it doesn't appear that they did any of that. I have I have a follow-up call that I want to make to Houston PD regarding my open records request because I requested the audio from the 911 calls and I requested the dispatch logs which are two very crucial pieces of information at least I can see when were police dispatched to the scene when I got my production from them which they were very good and prompt about getting to me but all I have are reports I just have like the reports, the main reports, supplemental reports. I don't have any of the logs or evidence submission forms, any of that stuff. So I need to make a follow-up call and find some of that stuff. And it may some of that stuff may be buried in the DA's file. I haven't been through all 600 pages of that yet. Could it be anything like the uh, the crime scene footage where they don't do they possibly they don't have a way to transfer it to you? Could be, but they didn't tell me that if that's the case because I thought because a lot of time that happens with audio. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with like the, the, the audio tape from the, the 911 call, which was fine. I'll fly down there and copy it. Um, but they didn't tell me that. See, the, the district clerk was nice enough to tell me I've got a VHS tape. Have you told that story on here about the VHS? I think so. Okay. Didn't, as far as how I got the crime scene video, I was asking. If I haven't, uh, yeah, they, they told me that they had a VHS tape in the file at the district clerk's office at Houston. And the lady that I spoke to who was very, I think she's even listening. I think she's listening now. Um, I don't want to say her name. But uh, hello, if you're listening, and thank you for your help. But she was great. She called me and she said, hey, I've got a VHS tape here. I don't know what's on it. 
but if you want a copy of it, you got to come up with a way to copy it. So I had to put out like Facebook posts to find someone that I knew who had a working VCR, found one, and then went and got um, some software for my computer and a hardware converter device, and then had to pack all that and fly all that to Texas with me, and then go walking into the district clerk's office with a VCR under my arm, uh, and then had to, and then went, and then you got to do it in real time too. There's no like high speed dubbing for all of you that you guys are probably too young for even a high speed dubbing. For all of you that used to listen to the top nine at nine back in 1985, and you had your double tape deck boombox uh, that we would put a tape that you bought at the store on one side and a blank tape in the other, and hit play on one and record on the other, and you'd hit high speed dub, and it would transfer it fast. Either of you aware of that? No, no, but I I don't <laughs> think we need to be berated. <laughs> <laughs> I hate that you guys are so young. <laughs> well, I well, I mean, I'm not that young. I actually did that. I didn't do the high speed dubbing thing, but I did the recorder recording business with cassette tapes and and in and, the 90s. Yeah, for sure, I did. God, I don't. I feel like by the by the by the time you were 10 years old, everything was CDs by then. No, I did the same thing, but I'm halfway in between you guys. Right? Yeah, you're right. In so between. I'm not quite as old as you. You know, old man status, but I'm not quite as young as Mike either. Right. Uh, I just remembered that we're we're still making a podcast while we're having this conversation. Yeah, that was the story about me getting the crime scene video that's on YouTube now. I don't remember how we got on that topic of the crime scene video because we were talking about timing. Oh, I, I brought up the fact that maybe they wouldn't they weren't able to transfer it to you because it was on some. Oh yeah, the, 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 yeah, no, yeah, and that's for the dispatch tapes, but the logs. So the logs just a, a written, typed or written thing that says at this exact time I dispatched you know detective verbatowski to go to the crime scene that's what i want to see to try to narrow some of this down or the um the phone records and pager records i think can narrow all this down but anyway so that's a long answer that went in a weird direction to your to your guys question and no i don't know the exact time so and actually in this week's episode we're going to talk timing is going to be very important in this week's episode we're basically just going to have to ballpark the window so so we're going to be talking about in this week's episode some very specific events and order of events. So it is it is all useful and relevant, but it, man, it sure would be a lot better if we had timing. Because as they said here, if this played out as we know she got off the phone at Janet Dorsey's at 9.30, and we know that the first 911 call was made at 9.35, then absolutely there's no possible way she could have been involved. It's not enough time, even 10 minutes, because, yeah, it would take a lot of time because we know that she was there. We know that's verified. If we didn't know for sure that she had been at Janet's and made the calls, then you might be able to come up with a scenario where all of all of this makes sense. Uh, but since we know that she did, then what she, on her way back, just happens to be, you know, as her statement says, these two guys that, for some reason, needed a 15-year-old girl to help them plan to rob that tight Honda Civic that was out in the in the parking lot from this specific woman, which, by the way, here's some more questions I'll throw out. Jennifer had been staying there with Eva for, what, two nights? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Doesn't know Catalina. How does she know that when they come in and randomly pick one out of 100 cars in a parking lot that they want to steal, how does she know? Oh, yeah, that's hers. That's the lady that lives downstairs. There's just a lot of things that seem very unlikely. Janae has got a couple questions here. First, she says, was any blood found on the fence to show that the killer exited this way? None that I'm aware of in the early reports or that I can see in the crime scene photos. But again, we still have, I have not dug into the forensics yet in depth and we will be covering that soon. So, I mean, that's one thing we do know is they had to exit that way because it's a keyless deadbolt, which means there's not a way to lock it. Right. And the chain was shot. So, yeah, they had to exit that yeah, way. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I guess that, that might have been more to the point I was thinking about the blood. But, yeah, we do know for a fact that's the way. That, there was only two ways in and out. And like and you can see in the crime scene videos, because for some reason I didn't know they were talking about with the keyless deadbolt. But, yeah, they had two. They had one that was the normal deadbolt that you see with the key in the outside. And then there was one that was only on half. It's only on the inside of the door to lock it. I guess it's to keep the maintenance man from coming in. But they said the keyless deadbolt was locked and the security chain was was shut so definitely the only way out was through the patio next she says is that a footprint in the soil outside of image 20 and by image 20 she's referring to the crime scene photos right right so these are on the website if you haven't checked out the crime scene photos you might want to go do that uh you definitely probably want to go do that and uh, answer your question i don't know um i want to look a little closer i look i went back and looked at states exhibit 20 after I saw this question, I don't know. I And then the crime scene video, you can see a little bit too. Could be. But speaking of footprints, I was I was a little surprised that I haven't heard from anyone about this in those crime scene photos. The very next photo in uh, States Exhibit 21, there is a very clearly identifable footprint. Uh, Zach and I were looking at it before yeah. we came in. You pointed it out to me. And I mean, it's, there's clearly a footprint there that has stuff on top of it, which means it can't be anybody else's besides somebody that was in there before the murder right. or during the commission of the murder. Well, it could, the one that one piece of black, whatever that is, mm-hmm. it's hard to tell from that picture if that was part of the impression, you know, or or if it was laying on top of it. So I, I can't say that it had to have, that, that footprint had to get there during the murder. But what we do know is that it was there. It was either the killers or Keith Truesdale. Because when you look at that photo, you can see where it's a very clear footprint that comes from, like, from the patio towards where Catalina's body is. But it's right between the orange flower pot and the flower pot stand, meaning you couldn't, you couldn't step there. And so once Truesdale moved those items, you could not step in that spot in the carpet. Well, and if you look at the photo, based on what you showed me, I mean, you can clearly see the foot traffic around it. And then it is alone by itself, right? Pretty visible that there is a footprint there. Yeah. So that could. So it's either Truesdale's boot print or the killer's boot print. Definitely not the boot print of a or the shoe print. I think you would agree of a of a fifteen year old girl. It's a big. It looks like a size twelve 
like a big print. Next, she says, I'm confused by the use of a knife after she was knocked over the head. I think the pot plant attack just shows anger and altercation leading to beating her up. But to then use a knife and stab multiple times, this feels like something a hardened criminal would do to ensure she doesn't talk, not a 15-year-old girl. I 100% agree. But again, I I don't think we can use that to rule out Jennifer because in her own confession, she's not the one. She's just a lookout. Who's upset about the fact that things aren't are going aren't aren't going the way she thought they were going to go? That no one was supposed to get hurt. But I also agree with the assessment. Like this is this is a woman who would seem as though she's unconscious or on the the, the edge of consciousness after having a pot. And it sounds like a metal. We'll get into the medical evidence soon too. A metal a cast iron stand hit over her head and then proceed to stab her multiple times. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I don't want her coming to and identifying me, and so I'm killing her. Is 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 what happened? Yeah, that, that's definitely someone. I don't think it's their. I don't think it's their first time. Probably wasn't their last, as far as being violent. Lynn writes, "Who identified Eva sitting on the stairs as police investigated in the crime scene video? Have any other potentially key individuals been identified in that crowd of onlookers? Is Jennifer there?" So that was me, and for those of you that haven't been on our YouTube channel and watched the crime scene video, you'll see I added, when the, when the camera pans up the stairs, I, I just put in a title screen that says Eva, because it's Eva sitting at the top of the stairs up there. Um, I just added that in because I thought it would be interesting for you guys to know. I will be adding to that, and I know it's her from other pictures of her. I just I just know that's Eva. There are most definitely other people in that video. That that our names we're going to hear from in this week's episode. I need to really dig in and see if I can identify particularly who. But what I'll tell you is, I believe that Red Rock and his friend are in that video. Not sure about Jennifer, um, just because the camera's moving fast and there are people far away. Uh, so I don't know if she's actually in it. I don't. I, off the bat, I didn't see her anywhere. Also, wish the crime scene video. It's you know one other thing is I didn't notice a white Honda. Civic in the crime scene video in the parking lot either. So I'm wondering where that was parked. Um, so that, that's maybe some homework for everybody who wants to go in and, and dig through. I haven't spent a lot of time on it, but it sounded like there was this Honda in the handicap spot right outside the apartments, but I didn't see that car in the video when they're out in the parking lot. Tara says, do we know if the wrought iron plant stand came from the patio or if it was interior decor? I, I honestly don't know. It would be good information to have. And when we start really getting into the crime scene, uh, and I'm also, by the way, waiting on 90 more photos from the uh, Houston PD, because all I have now are the photos that were used at trial, because I was looking at the in the photos that we have. And what I don't see are impression marks in the carpet from where the stand would be. Also, I just can't picture where that stand would be. Also, I can't figure out how all of that goes together. I think it might have been from outside. I mean, you've seen the pictures, Zach, the the big orange plastic pot doesn't seem like an inside pot to me. No, you're right. It it doesn't it does seem like an exterior pot, but also it's confusing to me as to why they would bring that so far into the building. Right. You know, I mean, that's if it is from the patio with the pot on it. With the I pot can see on if it. you grab the stand to use it and as a weapon. And the pot's laying by the door or outside. Right. But how did the pot get all the way in there if it's not interior? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. And I, I'm dying to get in. We will get in. We are going to dig deeply into the crime scene. 
I just feel like we need to straighten out some of these timing things first before we get into it so so it'll all make more sense for us. But there also there's the fact there's two pots, right? So you got the orange pot, which I was a little confused about in this episode. Jennifer said she saw kind of the broken orangish red pot, which I assumed was the big plastic pot that was sitting out, you know, that, that had gotten moved. Until I realized, I think some listeners had pointed out on some of our social media that in the crime scene photos, the white ceramic pot, which was busted over her head, has so much blood on it that it looks, several of our listeners looked at it and said, oh, is that the broken orange red pot? And I'm like, no. And my first reaction was, no, that's a white pot. But it's like, oh, I wonder if that's what Jennifer saw. And especially from a distance, you're only seeing the color. Right. It looks like that. But so, but I can't figure out, I don't know where the white pot came from. You can see somewhere behind that little kind of nightstand or end table that's kind of on the corner there as you would turn right to go to the door. There looks like there's some kind of white something, maybe ceramic back there. I don't know. But yeah, it looks like we have two different pots. And my original thought was I thought the white ceramic was something that was inside of the orange thing. But that doesn't make sense because it was it was a decorative white with flowers on it, like painted on it, ceramic pot. And then this big stand pot also. I don't I don't know. And then I, I wonder if maybe that stand pot was originally like where her body is. You know, like if, if, she, if they had her pinned her against the door and maybe like right inside. But then there's a clot. I don't know. We're going to get into it. Uh, that didn't answer your question, but hopefully it got you thinking. It'll get you all go back and look at more of the crime scene photos. Our last question is from Mary. I think it's a huge glaring red flag that the fact that the officer omitted from the written statement of the apartment manager that Eva came in and said the old lady was dead. Do you? I know it was written up after the case was cleared, but wow. Yeah, I think it's, honestly, it's so hard to know without you know, having audio recorded uh, interviews or transcripts because we don't know exactly what Pam Wiley said in the second statement. But given the tone difference and given her trial testimony, I think that she probably didn't, I, I don't think that we can put that hundred percent on Detective Allen or even hypo, you know, it, it, meaning that I don't think that when Pam gave her written statement after the case was cleared that she said, and Eva came in and told me that she was dead and that Detective Allen didn't write that down that way. I think that what had happened was through their multiple conversations and the fact that Jennifer was already arrested, her tone shifted in that first interview. You was very clear. She was offering up information about, oh, by the way, Catalina has been complaining about Eva. Uh, and I had told Eva that she's been complaining about people in and out of there. And, and she also says then she came in and said that the woman was dead, which I don't think she, she knew the significance of that at that time. But I think by the time the written statement was given, she had shifted any suspicion on to Jennifer. You know, Jennifer had been arrested. Eva hadn't been. Eva had already given their notice to leave the apartment complex by then. And so she's just not talking about Eva. And, and, and all of a sudden, all that tone is gone. And she's going to be giving that statement based on questions that Detective Allen is asking her. And so it's also pretty clear. Keep in mind, at one point, one of Jennifer's statements to Detective Allen was that Eva and some of her friends went and or one of her friends were going to, quote, rough up the lady downstairs because she'd been complaining on them. So you'd think that in that interview, it would have been a good question to ask, was there any kind of beef between these two? But he didn't. It's, it's, it, th that interview had one purpose, and it was to help try and strengthen the case against Jennifer Jeffley. That's it for questions this week. Thanks, everybody, for writing in. All right. Yes, thanks, everybody, for tuning in this week. Make sure you tune in Sunday, Episode 5. Very interesting. We're going to learn a little bit more about Red Rock. 
his buddy and how their statements and Katie's statements and Youngster's statements and Jennifer's, along with a couple other witnesses you haven't heard from yet, all come together. That's in two days. Between now and then, please take a minute, check out True Crime Binge. We've got five episodes already and many more to come. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Say goodbye to the dish and hello to Sky Stream, the new way to get Sky over Wi-Fi. So you can get unmissable Sky shows like The Last of Us and Succession, as well as Netflix and Discovery Plus, and loads more, all in one subscription for £26 a month. Oh, and next day delivery with no upfront fee. 
Sky Stream. TV simplified. Head to sky.com. Requires Sky Stream and broadband minimum speed 10 megabits per second. 18 month minimum term. Cut off times apply for next day delivery. Excludes bank holiday. 18 plus terms apply.